Nice glasses. Oh, thanks. I have 20-20 vision. I don't really need glasses. Oh. Well, I used to have perfect vision until I caught an eye disease while on the mission field. So, glasses, it's totally worth it. Um, where did you do mission work? I spent an entire week in Africa. Well, I was in Africa for an entire year. It's amazing how much you get to know Jesus when you're there for that long. Where were you in Africa? I rescue orphans from there all the time. Really? I wonder if you rescue them from the orphanages that I build there. I don't think so. Oh, you wouldn't probably know that they're mine. I don't have my name on the building or anything. I prefer to remain anonymous. <laughs> oh, well, I prefer to remain anonymous too, but when you do so much for Jesus like I do, you just can't help but be known. Listen, I have built so many hospitals and churches because I care about the body and the soul. That's nice, but I don't need a church to save souls. I just preach from the side of the mountain, like Jesus. Well, if you would come down off of that mountain, you would know what people really need, like I do. Oh, please, like you know what people need. Me and Jesus, we're tight. Look, you guys wouldn't even know Jesus if he came up to you with a sign that said, I'm Jesus. Are you kidding? I've brought more people to Jesus than Jesus. Well, he wouldn't even have a ministry if it wasn't for me. Jesus. What are you doing? Do you love me? Do you really love me? Then follow me. the handheld. Oh, hold on. There we go. One, two, three. They're going in and out a bit. All right, let's try this. Otherwise, we might need that handheld. Oh, no. You want to, you want, can I have the handheld, mate? I think this thing's going in and out. One, two. All right, let's, let's try that again, shall we? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, just watching that simple little drama on the screen brings a certain level of discomfort to us. Think about how we can be pretty preoccupied with the little things we've done or what we might have accomplished or how we compare to someone next to us. And then we come face to face with the example of you, Lord, kneeling at the feet of those you love and washing your feet. And Lord, as we come to that very story today, as we come and look at what you did and what you said in that upper room, just within a day of dying for us. Lord, we pray that we would see in ways we haven't seen and we would hear you in ways we haven't heard before and we would be changed because of your humility. Would you transform us, Lord Jesus, by your spirit, we pray. In your name, amen. Well, kia ora, Summit Church. Great to have you with us, either here at Botany or uh, watching at Hastings as we refilm this for second service. It's cool to have you guys with us. And if you're listening or watching online, it's great to have you as well. We are starting a new series this morning called Transformed, where we are jumping into the second half of John's Gospel in the New Testament. There are four Gospels uh, discussing or sharing the story of Jesus, and John is one of them. 
And about a decade ago, we took some time as a church to walk through the first half of John's Gospel, John 1 to 12. And after many years, we're now actually coming back and we're jumping into the second half um, of John's Gospel. So this is going to take us some months to work through John 13 all the way through to John chapter 21. Um, as we explore the second half of the biography about Jesus that John wrote. John was the last of the four to write his story of Jesus. And so it's probable that John already knew what Matthew and Mark and Luke had written about how they told the story of Jesus. Because John chooses to go in a very different direction than those three and to focus in on a number of episodes and teachings that the other Gospels hadn't touched on, but John knew about because he had been there as one of uh, the closest followers of Jesus. And so we're jumping in at the beginning of this series this morning in John chapter 13. So if you've got a Bible with you, either paper or an iPad or a phone uh, with an app on, really love you to turn to this because I think it'll be tremendously helpful to actually have this passage in front of you. And I'd encourage you to be bringing either your Bible or your phone or whatever it is that you use, bringing that each time you're here as we explore this passage together. That would be fantastic. What the other three uh, Gospels do is they tell the story of Jesus in Matthew and Luke's case from his birth onwards, but the other three Gospels zero in particularly on the last week of Jesus' life leading up to his death and resurrection. John kind of does the same but he doesn't concentrate on the week leading up to the death of Jesus. He concentrates on the last 24 hours. And so when we jump into the upper room, uh, the room where Jesus and his 12 closest disciples meet and celebrate Passover, where Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, we are within 24 hours of Jesus dying on the cross. And so this is very much Jesus' last day. This is his last words that we are recorded for us in Luke 13 and following. These are his last actions with his closest followers. So this has tremendous power and merit for us to look at. What did Jesus say? What did Jesus do right before he goes to the cross? And what we want to suggest right through this series is that it's these final words of Jesus, it's these last actions of Jesus, and that it is his sacrificial death on the cross and his bodily resurrection from the dead. All of those things together in this very short period of time are what changes and transforms us as his followers. And so we are jumping in at the very beginning of this in John chapter 13 today, and we're looking at this idea that we are transformed by his humility. Because where John begins this last uh, window of Jesus' 24 hours is he begins with the scene that was alluded to in that little drama where Jesus will kneel in front of his uh, disciples, each of them in front of them, and he will wash their feet. And that's the story that we're told in John 13, verses 1 to 17. And so that's what we're going to look at today. This is um, an, a very familiar story to many, many people who have been in the church scene or have been Christians for some length of time. So if you've been a follower of Jesus for a while, uh, you may know this story reasonably well. You may have read it a number of times. You may have heard it preached or seen it acted out and all kinds of things. If you're newer on the scene, this may be a, a fresh story for you, uh, in which case I would say you are at the advantage this morning. Because the, one of the problems we have is when we come to the familiar stories of the Bible, we think we already know it. And so we, <clears throat> in a sense, hurry our way through the story. We go, oh yeah, I know this story. And so when it comes to this familiar story of Jesus washing the disciples' feet, we jump to the conclusion we think we already know, and we miss actually some key detail of the story along the way. And so that's why I want us to have a Bible in front of us if we can, and actually follow along and look at what John tells us and how he tells us the story. Because I want to suggest there's layers in the story that I hadn't actually seen until this week. And I want us to actually peel back and really appreciate what's going on in this amazing story. This uh, story of Jesus washing the disciples' feet really becomes um, a huge example story across the church, across the world, through the ages. This is a bronze sculpture on the grounds of Dallas Seminary, where Rochelle and I lived and studied uh, for three years, 20-something uh, years ago. And so whenever we were going between uh, classes, that's the lecture hall kind of in the background, or one of them at Dallas Seminary, 
you walk past this sculpture. And it's of Jesus stripped down to a loincloth, kneeling in front of the Apostle Peter, washing his feet. And really, you couldn't think of a, a better scene in the Bible to capture in sculpture on the grounds of a seminary that is training future leaders for the church. Because there's no better story, is there, for future church leaders to really capture than this story of what servant leadership really looks like in the person of Jesus. But the problem is that after the first time I saw that sculpture and, and went and looked at it and noticed the beauty of the way it had been created by its artist, from then on I just walked past the sculpture. It, it really was just part of the grounds, just like the other trees and bushes around. And I, I took it for granted and, and I think just missed what was there, what was right in front of me. And as I've been preparing this message and coming back to what for me is a very familiar story, it's dawned on me this week that I have walked past this story so often, thinking I already know what it teaches and what it says, only to find, as I've really dived into it, there is so much more going on. I love chocolate cake. I'd like to say I'm a connoisseur of chocolate cake. And for me, the more layers on that chocolate cake, the better. And I feel like John 13 is kind of like a multi-layered chocolate cake with a beautiful uh, layer of icing on the very top. And what I've come to realize this week is I've been simply eating the top layer and enjoying the icing and probably getting a slight sugar rush every now and then. But there are layers to this story that I have not seen. There are, there are complexities and, and different things going on in the story that I have skipped past time and time again. And so today, I want to bring you back to a story that you may think you know. And I want to invite you to read this story with me with fresh eyes and let it capture you again and let it transform you again. The story is in three parts. There is the, the narrative, which is John telling us how the story begins in verses 1 and 5. So that's the introduction as he tells us what is happening in this upper room. Then, in verses 6 to 11, there is a dialogue, a conversation between one of these 12 disciples, Simon Peter, who's often the, the loudmouth one, uh, and he is in the story, um, and that this conversation happens between Peter and Jesus. And then the third part of the story is what I've called a monologue. It's basically Jesus at the end teaching the disciples and saying that they are to follow his example. My problem has always been, and if you know this story well, I'm guessing that this is your problem, we jump to the end. We come to the story, and if I had interviewed you this morning, coming in saying, have you been a Christian for a while? You've been part of church for a while? Yep. Do you know the story of Jesus washing the disciples' feet? Yep. What is it about? My hunch is what you would have said to me is that Jesus washes his disciples' feet as an example to us of what we should do, of how we should serve one another. And you would be exactly right. That is exactly what the story is teaching at one layer. But there are multiple layers to this story that we have gone skimming right past to get to the end. And so what I want to do this morning is I actually want to invite you to hold on to that last part, that there is a great example for us here but I want you to slow down and walk through the earlier part of the story a little bit more carefully and see some of these other layers that John is unfolding for us in this amazing story. So we're going to begin in verses 1 to 5, the, the narrative, the way that John, as the narrator of the story, sets up the story. And in his narration in verses 1 to 5, I want to suggest that what John is doing is he is uh, trying to help us see that the humility of Jesus is meant to transform us because it shows the depth of his love for us. That's the key emphasis that he's going after at the start of the story. So if you've got the story open in front of you, have a look. John chapter 13, verse 1. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the very end. This verse introduces not just this story in John 13, doesn't just introduce John chapter 13, it introduces the entire second half of the book. 
So John's been telling the story of Jesus, focusing in on seven miracles, seven signs as to his identity in the first half, first 12 chapters. Now he comes to the second half. He's zeroing in on the last 24 hours of Jesus' life before he dies. And he begins with this verse. It sets the scene for everything else that's going to come. But it also sets the scene for this exact story. And there are two key phrases I don't want you to miss because I have missed them for years in this verse. The first one is in the second sentence. It says, Jesus knew that the hour had come. Now, that's a phrase that John has been using earlier in his gospel. For example, in John chapter 7, there's a story. And John writes, at this they tried, the enemies of Jesus tried to seize Jesus, but no one laid a hand on him because, here it is, his hour had not yet come. Then John chapter 8, no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Look at verse 1 of chapter 13. Jesus knew the hour had come. So this is a significant moment in John's story of Jesus. Um, Jesus wasn't put to death earlier because his hour had not yet come. His hour had not yet come. Now we come in John 13 and John says, the hour's come. And the hour is not a literal hour. It's the time of Jesus' death. So what John is saying is everything that happens from this moment in this gospel forward, this is, this is the time of Jesus' death. And within 24 hours of these events we're looking at today, Jesus will have died on the cross. He will have said, it is finished. He would have breathed his last and he would have been laid in a tomb. And so John is saying, the hours come. Eminent uh, theologian R.C. Sproul writes this in response to that. It's important to understand that Jesus' washing of his disciples' feet was done in the shadow of the cross. We cannot properly understand the significance of foot washing of this episode apart from this proximity to the crucifixion, the ultimate act of love. See, our problem is we read this as an isolated story. We just read about Jesus kneeling and washing feet and everything else. But what John's wanting us to understand is the hour has come. We are now in the time frame that's going to culminate in the crucifixion. And, and R.C. Sproul is exactly right. As we see Jesus kneeling in front of Andrew and Bartholomew and James, we're meant to see the shadow of the cross already over him. Because the foot washing is a demonstration of what he's about to do when he gets nailed to the cross. That's the first phrase we need to catch in verse 1. The hour has now come. The second little phrase I want you to see is at the very end of verse 1. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. To the end. What, what, what is the end? Well, it could be to the end of his life. In other words, he loved them to the, to his, up to his last breath, to the very end of his life. Or it could mean more a qualitative one, he loved them to the uttermost. He loved them to the full extent. So it could be a time one or a qualitative one. Personally, I don't think we necessarily need to even choose. I think John could well have meant both. That Jesus and everything that happens from this point in John's gospel on is showing us the full extent of his love for his followers to his last breath. So what that means is that we are meant to understand this story about Jesus kneeling and washing dirty feet with the shadow of the cross hanging over it and understanding that what Jesus is doing and as Jesus speaks through these following chapters, we are seeing multitude expressions of his love for his people. So having said that, then let's look at the rest now of this narrative. Verse 2. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. So John doesn't tell us, but the other Gospels tell us Judas has already come to a deal with the chief priests. He's already got 30 pieces of silver uh, in his pocket. And so Jesus is about to kneel down and wash the feet of Judas while Judas is carrying the silver that he's been given to betray Jesus. And what is more, 
Jesus knows. Verse 3. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and he'd come from God and was returning to God. So verse 1 has told us Jesus knew that the hour had now come. Verse 3, Jesus knew that God has given all things into his hands. Verse 11, Jesus knew who was going to betray him. So Jesus knows everything that's going on. Jesus knows the coins are already clinking in Judas's pocket. Jesus knows that the Father has given him all authority. So what you'd expect him to do is to fry Judas right there. That's what I would have done, personally. That was me. That's why I'm not given that kind of power. Look at what Jesus does instead in verses 4 and 5. He got up from the meal. He took off his outer clothing. He wrapped a towel around his waist. He poured water into a basin. And he began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Uh, Rochelle and I, a couple of weeks ago, had the privilege of being in Nepal with Roland and Elaine and uh, working with the Barnabas School of Leadership. There's a photo I showed uh, last week of us on Easter Sunday. We were part of this parade of about 3,000 Christ followers in Nepal celebrating the resurrection of Jesus by walking through the town. And um, this is where we ended up at what they call one of the local parks. It looks much more like a, a rubbish dump in our world. Notice the, the, the ground around us. Um, it's just dirt and dust. And whilst they have asphalt roads and they have some paving, especially in the old city of Bhaktapur, um, primarily it's just dust and dirt. What was interesting is during our nine days in Nepal, I pretty much had covered shoes on or, or sneakers the entire time, but Rochelle would often have sandals on. And so by the end of the day, whenever we'd go back to our hotel, I'd kick my shoes off. What she would have to do is kick her sandals off and pull out a packet of wet wipes that we'd brought, and she would have to pull out a wipe and just wipe off her feet. Because it was, there was just dust every day, just dust covering her feet that she needed to wipe off. Now, in light of the story I just realized this morning, I should have probably knelt down and grabbed the wet wipe and actually wiped her feet for her. And I don't think I actually did that the whole time, so honey, I apologize. Um, but the ancient world was much more like Nepal than our world. So you'd go for a walk and your feet were grimy. You'd go visit your neighbor and your feet were grimy. You'd head up to the temple to worship and come home again. Your feet were dirty. You couldn't walk anywhere in the ancient world in sandals, which is what the footwear was, without getting dirty feet. And so in every home, there was a basin and a pitcher of water and a linen towel, where as you entered a home, you could kick your sandals off and you could give your feet a quick wash, a quick wipe, exactly what Rochelle was doing in Nepal. Now, in some homes, there would be a slave who would do that for you, but it wasn't any slave. And in fact, it wasn't any person. Um, rabbis or teachers like Jesus their disciples were often like their servants, and so they would look after them and serve them and do tasks for them. But the Jewish Mishnah, some of the regulations from Jesus' time, stipulated a disciple could not be made to wash the feet of their rabbi. Because to wash the feet of a rabbi was just a horrible job. So you, wouldn't, you, know, you could not make your disciple wash your feet. In fact, if you were a slave owner, you could not make your slave wash your feet if they were a fellow Israelite. The only kind of slave that could be made to wash your feet was a foreigner because this job was the lowest of the low. And so ordinarily, if you came into a home and there was no foreign slave to wash your feet, then you would do it. You would just quickly uh, sprinkle water out of the pitcher in the basin and, and wipe your feet off and you were done. What's fascinating in this story is they're in the upper room ready to celebrate Passover together, 13 men. And here they are, they're lying around the table, they're reclining around like a low coffee table, but it seems like no one's washed their feet. Now obviously there was no foreign slave to do it, but it seems as though the disciples didn't do it either. And so I've been wondering why on earth is that? And then I remembered in, over in Luke's version of the story, Luke 22 tells us that they have been arguing over who is the greatest. This is like the ongoing debate for months. This is what they've been arguing about. Who is more important? Which of them was greater than the others? Who's going to be the key person in the kingdom of God? And so they've got to this Passover meal. They're still arguing over who's the greatest. 
And they walk in, and Andrew could have washed his own feet. But it seems as though he just went to lie down because he thought, you know what? I'm the greatest. I trusted in Jesus before my brother Peter did. In fact, I introduced Peter and Jesus. So I'm way ahead of Peter. So I'm going to just lay down for dinner, and Peter can wash my feet. And Peter walked in, saw Andrew lying there with dirty feet, and went, stuff him. I'm not washing his feet. They stink. And so he just went to lay. So all of them, they're lying down because they're in the middle of this debate. Who is the greatest? Why don't you wash my feet because I'm the man? And so the meal has been served, and they're still all lying there with their feet in the outer ring, all dirty. And it's in that context that Jesus gets up from them, takes off his clothing. Uh, There's some debate as to how much of it. I think probably all of it down to a loincloth so that he looked like a slave. And he picks up a towel in the basin. And he goes around one by one and washes each pair of feet around the city. What's staggering about that is that that action by Jesus is unprecedented. Uh, an article was written some time ago by a guy called John Thomas who investigated foot washing in the ancient world. He wrote this, foot washing was so low, it could be used as a synonym for slavery. And then he wrote, Jesus' action remains unparalleled in ancient literature. No other master or superior condescends in ancient literature to perform this act for a subordinate. John Thomas not only analyzed Jewish literature at this time, he analyzed literature from across the ancient world and said, you will not find any instance anywhere of a master, a superior, a wealthy person, anyone of status at all. You will never read a story of someone like that washing the feet of someone who is lower than them in the social spectrum. The only time you ever see that at any point in the ancient world is here in the person of Jesus in John 13. We don't understand, because we don't live in that culture, just how radical the step is that Jesus has taken. As I've been uh, researching for this um, particular message, what has struck me is that virtually every commentator and every person that I've been reading at some point has gone from this story in John 13 to those famous words in Philippians 2. Uh, Everyone has just ended up quoting these words, that we are to have the same mindset as his followers as Christ Jesus, who though in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something uh, to be used for his own advantage. Instead, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a doulos. I said a few weeks ago to him about this issue, that should be slave. He took the nature of a slave being made in human likeness. And Paul will go on in the next verse to say, and then he humbled himself even further by dying for us, even death on a cross. When I spoke about this passage a few Christmases ago, I used this imagery to describe the the journey Jesus takes in Philippians 2, where he is in very nature God, but he makes himself nothing, a slave, and he humbles himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, Paul says, which is the lowest point. But then Paul will go on in the next few verses, 9 to 11, to say, therefore, God has raised him up to the highest place. But I was thinking about that and thinking about the the imagery of Philippians 2, and then I came across uh, one writing by Sinclair Ferguson, and he simply drew that exact diagram and then said that not only applies to Philippians 2, that applies to John chapter 13. Because you read the verbs in verses 4 and 5, he got up from the meal, he took off his outer clothing, He wrapped a towel around his waist and he stooped so low he began to wash their feet. No one did this. This is the most embarrassing, lowly task. But see, his hour has come. And what I think we miss is that this act of foot washing is a dramatic demonstration of what Jesus is going to do the following day which is hang on a cross for the sins of the world. And the ultimate act of humiliation and love. 
And that's why John begins the story the way he does in verses 1 to 5. That having loved his own, he loved them to the very end. And there's a layer in the story that I have gone skipping past for years. Yes, this is an example story. This is Jesus saying to us uh, at the end, you know, follow my example, do what I've done. Yes, it's a tremendous example, but it's more than just an example. It's a profound demonstration and reminder, this is how much Jesus loves us. He is willing to do the lowest possible job in human society as a demonstration and a pointer to what he will do that next day because his hour has come where he will go to the very pits, the worst possible death of dying on a cross for my sin and for your sin and for the sin of those 12 men sitting around the table. Jesus' humility transforms us by showing us the depth of his love. It is a dramatic demonstration of radical love. But then we get into this dialogue that happens between Jesus and Peter. And again, we go skipping past this. We've been brought up on movies that are all about action. So we want to get to the next fight scene or the next car chase scene. And we don't listen well when dialogue happens between characters. And so what often happens in the Bible is we go skipping past the conversation, skipping past the dialogue to get to the next action piece. And so we go skipping past this conversation between Peter and Jesus, but this conversation is another profound layer to the story that we've so often missed. Because Jesus' humility transforms and changes us, not only by showing us the depth of his love, but also because it cleanses us from our sin. It cleanses us from our sin. Look at verse 6 if you've got it there in front of you. Jesus came to Simon Peter. So he's been going around the circle. He may have done three or five or eight of the other disciples so far. We don't know. But he's come around the circle and he gets to Peter. And Peter says to him, verse 6, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Now, in, in the English translations, that sounds a very innocuous question. And like almost thick. Like he's washed all the other guys. So yes, he is going to wash your feet as well, Peter. But actually, Peter's not asking an innocuous question. He's asking a very profound question. Because in the original Greek language, one of the ways that, it, that the authors emphasize something is they put the key words at the front of the sentence. This is the way verse 6 literally reads. Lord, you, me, wash the feet. In other words, what Peter is really saying is, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? See, out of all of the, the, the closest followers, disciples of Jesus, Peter was the one who, when Jesus says, who do you think I am? It was Peter who said, you're the Christ. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Peter was the one who seemed to comprehend most quickly and most profoundly the identity of Jesus. This is God in human flesh. And now God in human flesh is kneeling in front of him, dressed in just a loincloth looking like a slave, ready to wash his feet when Peter was too proud to wash his own, let alone anyone else's. And now Jesus is doing it. And Peter sits there and goes, Lord, you are going to wash my feet? And the implication is, nah, yeah, nah. Jesus responds in verse 7. You do not realize what I am doing, but later you will understand. Uh, literally, Jesus picks up the same pronouns and emphasizes them as well. What I do for you, you don't understand now, but you will. Peter responds in verse 8, No, you will never wash my feet. There is no way that I am allowing the Messiah of the world, the Son of the living God, to wash my feet. To which Jesus replies in verse 9, oh sorry, verse 8, well, unless I wash you, Peter, you have no part in me. Well, that raises the stakes significantly, doesn't it? And I love Peter. I love the way Peter operates in the Bible. Look at what he responds in verse 9. Oh, 
okay then, well not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. So it's, which I think is meant to symbolise his feet, his hands, his head, meaning my whole body. So, so Peter's going, wait a minute, this, this is nuts. And I don't, know, I don't know, has this been quiet for all of the other disciples till it gets to Peter? Probably. This uncomfortable silence as Jesus has been going around washing feet. Gets to Peter, Peter's like, what the heck are you doing? You? Me? Uh-uh. And Jesus says, uh-uh. And Peter's like, nah, never. And Jesus says, well, then you're, then you're not in. And Peter's like, oh, no, hold on, I want to be in. Well, wash my whole body then, God. I just love Peter. And then Jesus makes this profound response. And the theological point comes now in verses 10, or especially verse 10, but verse 10 and 11 to go together. Jesus answers Peter, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. And you all, you all are clean, though not every one of you, for he knew who was going to betray him, and that is why he said not everyone was clean. What Jesus is doing is now making a profound point about this foot-washing exercise. This is not only a profound demonstration of his love for these guys as followers and by them representing all of us. This is also a profound demonstration of how we need to be cleaned by Jesus. In the Old Testament, cleansing and washing became one of the, the metaphors, the word pictures for how God needs to deal with our sin problem. All of us are sinful. All of us have done stuff that is wrong. All of us are broken before God. All of us have rebelled against Him. All of us are stained by sin. And one of the ways that the Old Testament pictured that is that through being unclean, that we are dirty in our souls, we're defiled in our minds, we are unclean in our bodies, we need to be washed and cleansed. And so that was picked up in the Old Testament laws around sacrifices um, in, a, in a really tangible way. And then later in the Old Testament, that would be uh, pictured in some of the words that we use. So for example, when David, the king, sins with Bathsheba and then confesses to God a year later in Psalm 51, this is what he prays, uh, wash away my iniquity, God, and cleanse me from my sin. See, this is the word picture, that he is dirty and unclean and he needs to come to God to be washed and cleansed. So he says, cleanse me with hyssop, which was the branch they used in those sacrifices to sprinkle blood or water that would bring cleansing. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. A couple of centuries later, Ezekiel, uh, repeating the words of God, would say, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from your impurities and from all your idols. So Jesus is picking up this line of thinking from the Old Testament. And as he's washing their feet and begins this dialogue with Peter, where Peter's saying, nah, nah, and Jesus is saying, uh-huh, and Peter's saying, never, and Jesus is saying, yeah, or you've got no part of me. And then Peter's like, well, wash the whole thing. And then Jesus makes this profound explanation in verse 10, but he's using this imagery that we are all dirty before a holy God and we need to be cleaned. Now have a look at verse 10 and what Jesus says, because he does a contrast between two types of washing. He talks about bathing or having a full bath of your whole body, and he talks about washing your feet. And what he's trying to say is that all of us need to be bathed. All of us need to be washed and cleansed of our sin. And when we come to faith in Jesus, when we choose to put our faith in him as the one who that next day will go to the cross and die for our sin, we are cleansed fully. That's what Jesus says to Peter and all of them in verse 10. All of you are clean. You've all been bathed. So you've already had your sin taken care of and you're already clean now before a holy God, except for Judas, because he hadn't chosen to respond in faith to Jesus. But... What Jesus says is that you only need now to wash your feet. In other words, you've been cleansed by God, but as you continue to walk with him through this grubby life, you still just get dirty feet every now and then. You know, you still sin, but you don't need every time you sin to feel like, oh my goodness, I'm now unclean. I don't have a relationship with God. I need to start all over again. Jesus is saying no. Once you trust in me, you are fully and freely forgiven. You are bathed and washed and cleansed. And all you do now is you just come 
and let me wash your feet and cleanse you from that sin and get you on your way again. And that's what it gets picked up time and time again through the rest of the New Testament. So in a letter called Hebrews, a book in the New Testament, we read the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, all those Old Testament practices, were sprinkled on those who were ceremonially unclean and it made them outwardly clean. But how much more does the blood of Christ dropping down cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death? So the writer to the Hebrews is saying that all that stuff in the Old Testament about being cleaned was just a pointer to what Jesus' death does for us. And when we trust in Jesus, we are fully and freely cleansed. But then John tells us in his first letter that what we then do as clean followers of Jesus is we simply come now to Jesus through the course of life and confess our sin and he cleanses us from unrighteousness. He just washes our feet again. So see, this foot washing that happens, this is not just an example for us. It's actually a profound demonstration of the depth of the love of the king who would stoop to being a slave for us. And it is also a profound demonstration of how we can be cleansed from all of our sin and then purified from our, our everyday ongoing sins as we walk with Jesus. Those are two layers to the story that honestly I had never seen before. And then you come then to the third part of the story, the bit that I've always just automatically jumped to. Because Jesus' humility in the story, washing feet, not only transforms us by showing us the depth of his love and showing us that we can be cleansed from our sin, but then also providing us this profound example that we are to follow. Look at verse 12 and following. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes again and returned to his place. It's the reverse order of verse 4. And he says, do you understand what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet. You also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master. No messenger is greater than the one who sent him. So now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. So this is now where Jesus institutes the peace that we do know so well. That he says, this is the example. I want you to do what I have done for you. Now there are some parts of the church around the world that believe that what Jesus wants us to do is literally wash each other's feet. And so they've instituted this almost a sacrament idea that along with communion and along with baptism, we should practice foot washing. And so there are parts of the church around the world that literally uh, practice this together as the body of Christ. They invite you know, to come. And to be honest, I was almost tempted to do that today. I was actually tempted in my message to have a chair up here and a bowl and a towel, and I was going to pull one of you lucky people out of the audience and get you to come and sit up here, and I was going to wash your feet. But the problem is I don't think that's what Jesus is actually saying. I don't think Jesus was instituting a sacrament. I don't think Jesus was saying, literally, I now want you to go around washing everyone's feet. Because A, that would be weird. B, if you try that at the office tomorrow, you'll get thumped by someone. And C, we don't need that in our world today, do we? We, in our, at least in our society, it's different in Nepal, but in our society, we've got concrete pavements and nice asphalted roads and our feet, if you're wearing jandals or sandals this morning, your feet don't get dirty by the end of the day that much. Foot washing isn't a necessity for us, but I don't think Jesus was calling us literally to wash feet. I think Jesus rather was calling us to have that same attitude and to be willing to stoop low to serve one another and to serve a world that needs it. So a few weeks ago in the Summit Journey series, I was talking about one of the traits of a disciple as being his humble service. And I talked about the fact that maybe the imagery we need is not that we are people of the towel and basin. Maybe the imagery we need to capture is that we are the people of the toilet brush. And that maybe it's that kind of job. That's what Jesus calls us to do. He calls us to wash each other's toilets or wash each other's cars, 
or to make a meal for someone and take it round. He calls us to mow each other's lawns. He calls us to weed each other's gardens. He calls us to do the lowly and thankless tasks in humility. It's not the act, I don't think, of foot washing. It's the heart of being a servant to one another. But here is what I would argue. I don't think we can do that until we've grasped the first part of the story. See, what happens is we come skipping down in the story to the last point, that we should follow his example and be servants. And that is so true. That is completely right. But here's the, here's the crux. We will never be servants for others until we have been cleansed by Jesus and served by him. And we will never be cleansed by Jesus and come to him in faith until we are convinced how much he really loves us. And so we miss some crucial parts of the story in our hurry to get to the conclusion. Whereas I would say that becoming humble servants starts with humbling ourselves to be washed by the humble servant. See, we talk a lot about grace. And I love the grace of God. The grace of God means that we come to him. We can have a relationship with Almighty God. We can be accepted by Him, forgiven by Him, adopted as His sons and daughters. And it's not based on what we do. It's not dependent on whether we perform well or not because we don't, because we're sinful. Uh, it doesn't mean we have to pay it back. He treats us with unbelievable grace. Grace means we don't work for it. We simply accept the gift that He offers. But here's the downside of grace. To accept grace... You are admitting your bankruptcy. To accept God's grace, you are admitting that you are a moral failure. To accept God's grace is to say, I can't measure up by myself, and I can't perform well enough for you. And so the very act of receiving God's grace is an act of humility. It's exactly what is captured in this story with Peter. Peter's saying, no, you're not washing my feet. Jesus says, if I don't wash you, you have no pardon. It's until we get to the point of humbling ourselves before the humble servant and saying, I can't be clean alone. I need you to wash me. That is the moment we begin to be transformed into the humble servants who will follow his example. And that's really the key idea. He calls us to become humble servants like he is. But that can only be possible when we've humbled ourselves before him and let him wash us. I'm going to ask the band to come up and this morning, we are going to celebrate communion uh, together. We have got the communion elements up here, the bread and the wine. And as the, the band finishes in, with a couple of worship songs with us, I'm going to invite you in your own time to just come and partake. John, in his story of the upper room, this final uh, time with his disciples, John doesn't tell us about the, the institution of communion, the bread and wine. That's what we find in the other Gospels. But on this night, during this very meal, after he has washed their feet, Jesus will take the bread from the meal table. And he'll pick up the wine and pour a cup. And he'll give these to his disciples and say, this is my body and this is my blood poured out for you. See, this is all part of the shadow of the cross. The hour has now come. And what transforms us is the humility of the servant king. The one who takes off his glory and as a slave washes out. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus today, I want you to understand that the Bible says your sin makes you dirty and defiled for a God who is pure. But an opportunity exists 
for you to be clean before a holy God. Not through your own efforts, not by cleaning yourself up, but by allowing the King of Kings to wash and bathe you. If you've never trusted in Jesus before, I want to invite you in the quietness of your heart to open it to him and confess your sin and ask him to cleanse you. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are clean. You have been bathed. But in the muck of everyday life, our feet still get dusty and dirty in this life. So Jesus invites us to come and confess our sin to him again and again and again and again. Just wash our feet once more. And so as we come and take communion this morning, I want to invite you to come not only and take communion, but I want to invite you to come confessing your sin. So before you come this morning, and you can come whenever you want to during this worship time, before you come, if you've never trusted in Jesus, I want to invite you to take that step and put your faith in Jesus. And if you are a follower of Jesus, I want to invite you before you come to communion, I want to invite you to just confess anything you need to confess. And thank him that he cleanses and washes and cheats. And we did in first service something I hadn't even planned to do, but I came up with spontaneously. Because Jesus wants to wash your feet. If you want to, and you don't need to, but if you want to, I want to invite you to do something pretty radical and pretty weird. But what the heck? I want to invite you to take off your shoes. Take off your socks or kick off your sandals. And as you come this morning, confessing your sin, come and take the bread and the juice. Come and remember what he's done for you. And if you want to, you don't have to, but if you want to, come in your bare feet. And metaphorically, as you take bread and wine, let him wash you again.